Welcome to the HealthCast. I'm your host, Mary Smith, and in today's episode, we will be discussing growth and development in children. Joining me today is a South African pediatrician, Dr. Simon Strawn. Dr. Strawn's journey into the realm of pediatric care began with his medical degree from the University of Cape Town in 1987, and he further specialized in pediatrics through the University of Witwatersrand in 1995. For the past 28 years, Dr. Strawn has been the cornerstone of a private practice in Bedford View, Johannesburg, and his impact has reached far beyond his clinic walls with publications in international journals and invitations to speak at both local and international conferences. He is currently the CEO of the South African Private Practitioners Forum and a director of the Pediatrician Management Group. Beyond his illustrious career, Dr. Strawn is a family man with a wealth of children and grandchildren, and his dedication to his own family is testament to his genuine care and compassion. Dr. Simon Strawn, welcome to the HealthCast. Thank you very much. What a beautiful intro, my goodness. That's uh, very kind. Thank you. Yeah, we, we actually had to shorten it a little bit. Um, just to to make sure we get to our topic, but feel free to read more about Dr. Strawn's incredible biography on the GlobeMed website. Dr. Strawn, moving straight into our topic for discussion today, growth and development in children. I know all parents like to hear and know that what they are doing is best for their little ones. Can you provide us with an overview of what is optimal growth and development out of a pediatrician's viewpoint. So we want the best for our children, don't we? We want them to turn out to the best they can possibly be. And for us to ensure that, it requires that we play a significant part in every facet of what they do. And this is from the moment of conception right the way through pregnancy. Uh, It's about ensuring that your child attains all of the growth points that we accept and know internationally as being relevant for various ages. And this is not just about weight. It's about head size. It's about length. It's about social development, about social interaction. It's about growing up as a healthy adult, having had the best start in life, and that you as a parent have participated in that, and that we as healthcare professionals have been able to give you, lead you along that way. Because let's be honest, at various phases through the life, even as a healthcare professional, I get moms and dads who come in here, their children have got specific illnesses, and I'll say to them, by the end of this, you're going to know more about this than me, because that's your entire focus. And you know this, you sit with moms around when they've got little babies, and they talk about their babies all the time. And they want to know from everybody else, who's doing what, who's doing what, why are you doing this? Did your doctor say that? And the bottom line is that there are certain very clear things that we should be doing for our children. And that as as, as long as parents, we get to those touch points, then you can as a parent go, I did did everything I could possibly do within the means that I had to ensure my child had the best. Definitely, Dr. Strawn, I know you mentioned a bunch of factors that, that obviously your child has to comply with that you keep note of or track of. Um, Just touching a little bit on that, what are some of the key developmental milestones that a parent should be on the lookout for? Well, you're not going to believe this, but it actually starts in utero. 
So it starts with how well your fetus, your little baby, your little bean in your tummy, how well that little one is growing. And to make sure that at that point, at the time of the baby's birth, that baby has had the optimal growth. So that's where it starts in terms of what is your birth weight, birth length. Um, obviously, the genetics that you were born with play a role. But in all intent purposes, what you're looking for is to look at the growth charts are relevant to your baby in terms of how your baby's being fed, formula fed or breastfed. And then to be sure that your baby grows on, forms their own line. But you can't, not everybody can be on the middle line. Because as we know as adults, some of us are tall and skinny and others are short and skinny and that's the other way around. So as long as your baby is forming the line along there that is parallel to the others, for the weight, the length, the head circumference, in terms of measurement, that's what you look at. So that's, that's the first thing you look at. The second thing you have to look at is how is that child then interacting with the environment? So you look at how, what are the gross motor milestones? So are you walking at the right age? Are you climbing, jumping, going up and down stairs at the right age? Fine motor things. Are you able to identify something? Pick it up, little pincer grass. Are you able to draw a circle, draw a square at the right age? Are you making eye contact, interacting with your caregivers and socially, in terms of that social development, are you doing that correctly at the right age? And then are you vocalizing? Are you saying things, listening, hearing, responding? So those are all the things, and we haven't even at this point, even examined your child yet. This is just by observation, um, before we've listened to the heart and everything else. So all of those things. And you can look them up. I mean, you can get an app and you can track it yourself on the app. But remember that when we say a child should be walking by 14 months of age, so a child should be solo walking by 14 months of age, for example. That doesn't mean you need to be worried out of your wits if your child's not doing it by 15 months. Because the whole concept of development is the global thing about it. So very often you will have little babies who are sitting up beautifully and laughing and giggling and pointing and grabbing, but they're sitting on their bums and they're not crawling and they get up and they walk and then they crawl. So it's, it, if you're going to be following it and tracking it yourself, rather just choose who you're going to take your info from and listen to that person's advice. Otherwise you can get yourself really uh, uh, in a real pickle about, oh, it's nine months of age and my baby's not done this yet. It's doing absolutely everything else. Better than every other child is just not doing that one thing. So it probably doesn't mean anything. But it is, it is important to have it in context. But those are the things that we look at all the time. And those are the things that as parents, as I said, there's a wealth of information out there. And you can use it yourself so that when you come to a, a consultation, you're able to engage immediately with the questions that you're being asked because it's forefront in your mind. And it's easier then to engage so we don't have to delve into every little minutia because you can give it that give us that information before we even start. I think the first thing that came to mind when you were going through it as well, um, I remember sitting or well, speaking with a bunch of friends and it came up that if your child actually crawls for longer than other children, so the longer they're able to like stay in the crawling phase before walking, the better they're going to be at maths one day. It's a, it's a very, you're right. It's a very common thing that we hear. There's, there's really no good evidence for that. There's no good evidence that children have to crawl. In fact, a lot of children shuffle around on their bums. And I can remember 
a very prominent neurodevelopmentalist in my training saying to me, he reckons those are the clever ones because shuffling on your butt, you can take something with you when you move and you don't have to lift your head up to see where you're going, but you can see where you're going. Imagine when you're crawling, you can't grab something looking like this every time you go. So it's things like that where, sure, if you're not crawling at a particular age, yes, it may mean something, but it's only going to mean something if that child also doesn't walk at the correct age or if there are other developmental things that are happening. If it's just one element of it, it probably doesn't mean anything, but it's worth having checked out. Yeah, then going through some of the factors that can obviously affect a child's development and growth, ranging from uh, basic things like nutrition, sleep, physical activity, and also, like you mentioned, doctor, um, genetics. Starting with nutrition, obviously, food is fuel. How can parents ensure their child is getting proper or adequate nutrition for that growth and development? Well, again, as I said, you you would need to think back to the, the time of being a bean in the baby, in the mummy's tongue. You know, we know that children who are born small, it's called small for gestational age. So if they're tiny little things when they were born and not because they're thin, but because they're skinny, if I can use that word. If you try and fatten up those babies, you will create fat adults with high blood pressure and diabetes. So the best chance you can get for your babies to ensure that during the pregnancy, the mum is as healthy as she can be, that she's taking the correct nutrients, taking the correct uh, trace elements and vitamins. And when the baby is born, to have that baby breastfeeding. And to understand that during breastfeeding, children still need to be supplemented with vitamin D, for example. That when children who are breastfeeding exclusively get to four months, they need to have iron supplied to them. That when you then move on to weaning stage at six months of age, that you continue with the breastfeeding and that when you introduce food, this is your opportunity to teach your child how to eat. So to stay away from processed carbohydrates, to stay away from added sugar, to get a good balance of protein rather than extensive carbohydrates in the meal, to make sure the child's getting the right vitamins and trace elements for a nutritional point. And part of that nutrition is to make sure, let me just take a step back. I've been using the word breastfeeding, breastfeeding, breastfeeding. I completely get that not everybody breastfeeds. So when I've said breastfeeding in that, it means make sure your child is on the correct formula for the child's growth. And that's something you need to chat to your healthcare professional about. But when you're weaning the child to then be sure that in those phases that you've done everything to make sure the child is healthy as possible. So you've vaccinated the child to prevent illness. Um, that you are making sure the child's having fortified foods, fortified with iron and, and iodine, um, and that there's enough zinc in the baby's diet, which these things are generally taken care of if you're in an economic situation where you can afford to buy healthy food. But it's very clear that if you don't get good food in the first 1,000 days of a child's life, now remember the 1,000 days starts from conception to the first 1,000 days. If you are stunted, in other words, if you're short for your age, you know there are massive, massive implications for that. Reduced cognitive development. I've got a slide here from a presentation that I gave a few months ago on exactly this topic. As, as it just happens, you didn't even know I had this, but I've done it. Less, less likely to finish school. They earn about 20% less as adults. Most likely to live in poverty as adults. 
three times more likely to have stunted children, more likely to suffer from obesity and chronic illness. This is if you are stunted and don't get the right nutrition. So it's important that you ask this question. And it is about just being very aware that what you feed your child must sustain them. And you know that by, by going for regular checkups and getting the, the growth measure, and not just the weight, but the length of the child. Obviously taking into account the genetics, because if you're born to small parents, you know what you're likely to be shorter than others. That's the way it works. But so if you're following good advice and you are breastfeeding as long as you can, or you're using an approved baby formula and you're following the weaning instructions about starting the children on good, wholesome food. So for example, we are now suggesting that children are quite adventurous when you start feeds. We know that you can start feeding for four and a half months. We know that you mustn't delay peanuts and egg introduction. We know that you stay away from refined carbohydrates. So you actually start the children on what we call the three veggie mix. Three different vegetables, steamed or oven roasted, mushed together. That's what you feed them. You involve them from the outset in that the feeding time is a social occasion. So if you're feeding them, Get them to explore their food. Let them paint with that banana and smush the butternut all over their face. You can host them down afterwards and have people sitting with them who are also eating and also talking and create that table time, create that uh, necessity that you have three meals a day, if that's what you're able to achieve. Um, and that instills in the child the sense of worth around food and the sense of social responsibility the sense of social interaction around food. Uh, and as, the, as, the, as my friends and dietitians always tell me, your responsibility as a parent is to provide your child with the good, healthy food options. It is the child's responsibility to eat it. So you can't force it down your child's throat. So if your child is fussy and not wanting to participate, if you do all this other stuff that I've spoken about, you might get, well, they might find, okay, mom's doing it, dad's doing it, grandpa's doing it, whatever. It's sit down and eat. Yeah, that definitely comes down also to the importance, like you said, of family eating, sitting down, eating together. Classic case of what they see, they do as well. Um, sleep is also crucial then, Dr. Strawn. I think social media is currently booming with sleep training therapies that are available. I mean, there are seminars that you can go and view, subscribe to, where they actually teach you and train you how your child should be sleeping in, in a, like an optimal environment. What's your opinion on adequate sleep for growth and development? That's the first point. So lots of parents will come and ask me about advice on sleep because somebody else has said to them, your child's two and a half and still sleeping in your bed. I don't care about that as long as you are sleeping. And the thing about children and sleeping is children need to learn how to fall asleep by themselves. Otherwise, if the child is being rocked to sleep and then put down somewhere, like in a crib or a cot, that environment is what the child identifies with waking up, not going to sleep. So the slightest amount of stirring in the night, just that flicker of a light phase of sleep, and I'm not where I was when I fell asleep, all hell's going to break loose because now how did I get here? So that's the, that's the point about it is, I mean, we know... That if you don't get at least, as adults, if you don't get at least four hours of unbroken deep sleep, you don't actually create memories of the day. So your learning is severely affected. So there's no question that young children need to sleep. 
Now, the other thing about it is um, this concept of clean, the clean sleep methodology. So clean sleep means you need to schedule a time that you're going to go to sleep. And this should apply for children from about four or five months of age. You know, in the first three, four months of age, the children don't know what they're doing. They're just eating, sleeping, pooing, doing what they must do. And we as parents have to love them through it and spoil them rotten. And that's what they, they need us. They, you need to wear your children at that age. So they really feel and they grow with you. But beyond that, you need to start looking at when your child is going down to sleep, it needs to be at a regular time. You know, we schedule every single thing in our day, but we don't schedule when we fall asleep. That just kind of happens when we tire. Our body doesn't work like that. Our body has to release melatonin from our brain to regulate our sleep rhythms. And you do that by creating a regular sleep, going to sleep time in darkness with no noise around you and hopefully falling asleep by yourself. So absolutely no screen time for at least one hour before bedtime. That should apply to everybody. That's really what it's about. It's about creating that environment that's conducive for the child to fall asleep. And then if the child is falling asleep on their own, when they sleep through the night, they're very likely just to go back to sleep. So, yes, parents need to be able to teach their children how to sleep. As a parent, if you don't show your child or tell your child what you expect from your child, your child's not going to know. So if you want your child to sleep in a cot in the next door room from four months of age and fall asleep by herself, well, you've got to create that environment for her. Exactly. Yeah, that's what it's about. Dr. Sean, moving over to physical activity, how can parents promote physical activity in children and what benefits, in your opinion, are there for children leading an active lifestyle? Around physical activity, I mean, what, what is limiting our ability to participate in physical activity? But unfortunately, um, it's because you may not be living in an in a area or in a place where you can just go out and run in the park. You may be limited to a much smaller location running around the block or running within a complex of buildings. So that, that's quite difficult. And it's also about the, the time space. Children are going to crash facilities and at those crash facilities, there are large numbers of children. So they will participate in just normal childhood activities. But I do think that there is there's very strong evidence uh, around, uh, for example, concentration in children. Yes. So we know that children with ADHD that there are very few things that make a significant difference in their lives, but one of them is exercise. We know that exercise definitely in children has a role on uh, reducing the amount of obesity. We know that exercise uh, will affect your sleep and will improve your sleep if you're exercising. And then obviously exercise will get you to be independent, get you to concentrate, develop a sense of self-worth, uh, encourage your participation in cultural and in sporting events, creates teamwork. Uh, and how do parents do that? Well, like most things in children, children follow their leader. So if there is an ethos in the family that we are going for a walk and we're going to exercise and we're going to do things, children will just follow it. And as much as possible, I think that's what parents need to do to the best of their ability. 
And I would encourage children as much as possible to participate in sporting environments. And if they're doing age-appropriate things from when they go into kindergarten or nursery school, they're going to school and they're participating in all of these games that are appropriate for age, that's what we need to be doing. Even children, you know, we, we all remember when we were at school and there were E and F and G teams. They were like the first team and then 10 or 11. There were still children participating in those because no, sport wasn't what they were best at, but still it was important for their development to participate and their core strength to participate in sporting activities. Dr. Sean, we live, unfortunately, we do live in a world of comparison. We're constantly comparing ourselves to our peers, whether you're children, parents. You did touch a little bit on this regarding genetics. Just elaborating a little bit more, Dr. Sean, what role does genetics play in growth and development for children and what influence do parents have? We know that uh, you are born with your, the genes as from your parents. But we know that the eventual outcome of you as a human being relates to how your genetic type, your specific individual genetic type, reacts to the environment in which you live. Okay, so there's those two aspects. So if you are born with genes where you are going to be shorter than average, well, unfortunately, you're going to be shorter than average, generally speaking. Okay, so you can't really predict that. You know, the size you are at birth has no bearing on how big you are going to be. So you often see little mums giving birth to a huge big baby. And you see big, larger mums giving birth to little babies. And then you hear if you double the height or the length, double the length at two years, that's kind of where you're going to be. But all of, that, all of that's got an error of about 9 to 13 centimeters. I mean, there's a formula you can use that can predict what's called your mid-parental height. That kind of gives you an idea whether on the balance of probabilities you're going to be taller or shorter. So uh, generally by looking at the parents' heights and getting a feel of what the family has, you will then have an idea of uh, where you will fit on the graph. But the phenotype, in other words, what happens when you now interact with the environment will determine whether you reach your maximum potential within your height bracket. And because your parents are shorter or taller, it may be different from the average, but you can still make sure you maximize it, maximize your height, and that you are the correct stature for your height. So you don't get overly heavy for your height that you, that you reach it. So, um, if we talk about just about normal genetics, obviously, unfortunately, there are children who are born with genetic abnormalities, which are just a chance thing. Some of them are hereditary, and that can affect your growth. We know there are children who develop certain medical conditions. Uh, children who have chronic illnesses will generally be shorter than others. Children with underactive thyroids, children with cardiac diseases, even severely uncontrolled asthma, children generally don't grow as well. So to maximize your potential, to maximize the, your genetic potential means you have to look at everything we've spoken about, being as healthy as, as you can, preventing disease as much as you can, eating as healthy as you can, being as active as you can. Absolutely. Dr. Sean, we know also that regular healthcare checkups with your pediatrician is essential to obviously make sure all of these, these checks are in place. From a pediatrician's point of view, how many or how regular should these checkups be? 
Yeah, so the, the critical time is in the first uh, 18 months to two years of the child's life for the reasons that we, that we mentioned. So, so let yeah. me just put that into perspective. You know that the, the, the kind of average head circumference of a child at birth is 35 centimeters. And the average head circumference of an adult is around about 54, 55 centimeters. So let's say on average, a child's head grows 20 centimeters from birth to adulthood. So fully grown. And we know that your head grows because your brain grows. Okay. So the, on average, a child's head will increase by 11 to 12 centimeters in the first year. And it will grow another five centimeters in the second year. So therefore, it will only grow another three or four centimeters for the rest of that child's life. Wow. So <laughs> there we go. So you need to be sure that we're on top of everything. Because if you think you're going to teach your child how to respond to anger when at five years of age, when it's having a real meltdown, <laughs> the child learned that from you because it watched you in the first two years of its life. Exactly. Okay. So that kind of puts the whole thing into perspective. So generally the first uh, six weeks of a child's life is critically important, just especially that first week or two after you leave the nursing home just to make sure that you're getting some home visits or you're in touch with your pediatrician so you can go through the, the jaundice and the feeding and get breastfeeding instituted. So those first two weeks are quite intensive. If you get through the first two weeks, the baby's gained, regained birth weight, then you can get at six weeks. And we will generally see the baby at six weeks because that's when you first start looking for are all the primitive reflexes there. Is the baby engaging? Is the baby latching, sucking? Is the baby growing? I then see children again at four and a half months if everything else is well they have some clinic visits in between for vaccines. And at four and a half months is when I need to start having a discussion about, are we ready for solid food just yet? How are we going to do it? What are we talking about? And then another once, probably three months later, and then again at one year of age. And then at 18 months, then at two years, and then I see them annually thereafter if they are completely healthy children. If there's any medical issue or if it's a, something about development I'm not happy with, I need to touch base with you about feeding. Then we'll set up a cadence of visits that maybe that obviously will be uh, uh, will fill in those gaps. But that's really what it's about. And it's you know it's when I do them, generally the children are fine. They're growing well. They're developing well because moms have access, as I said, to all of these apps and things that you can follow. But there's always, always something that helps them out. Mm. Something about sleeping, for example, or my baby's foot's turning in a little bit. Do I need to be worried about that? Or there's always something where the parents go saying, oh, I'm so glad I can, even if it's a little thing. The only reason second children are easier to bring up than first children, generally speaking, is because we have a clue as parents. We had no clue when we had our first babies and our first babies train us. So it is easier the second time around, but we do need to have those children just checked up. You know, just have somebody listen to that heart. Have somebody check that liver and that spleen, make sure there's not something popping up there. Let them check these little lumps that you get on the side of your neck, these little glands that come up from these frequent infections. Are they okay? How long have they been there? Just ask the questions because you learn, you learn all the time from that uh, and it makes life easier and gives you much more confidence as a parent. Dr. Strawn, as a dad and a grandfather yourself, how can parents strike a balance between encouraging their children to reach these developmental milestones at their own unique pace and abilities. So 
as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, when I, when my children were, were young, um, and yeah, I've, I've, I have three biological children, but there are nine children that I've been responsible for at various stages of their lives. Um, and you look at them when they're young or they're developing and you think, oh, you, you are exceptional at this aspect and I can see you becoming that. And eventually when they end up, they're not really near that. They're completely somebody else. And I'll tell you that, that for me, it's about, it's about patience. It's about giving the space. And it's about positive reinforcement. It's about not screaming at your children. So a simple thing I think about is you hear so often people, the first word my baby said was no. And I go, isn't that sad? First word they say is no. How about love or hello or something? Yeah. So and we know, we know bringing up children, uh, especially if you think back to your own childhood, you probably got a few warm but bum beatings for doing things. <laughs> that style called reactive parenting, where you come home from work and you're dead tired and your child's doing something naughty, so you just sort the situation out <laughs> rather than empowering your child. Uh, and it can be just as effective to get your children to participate in that level of development. I used to say to my teenage daughters, stop giving me a hard time. I've never parented you before. I don't know what I'm doing. So give me a chance to think through this and then I'll come back to you. That's yeah. kind of what it's about. It's about just giving them that space. It's like I equate it to standing in a boxing ring, you know? So yeah. you stand in the boxing ring with your teenage daughter or your teenage son and the ropes of the ring are the boundaries that you've set. And what they're going to do is they're going to throw themselves against those boundaries as hard as they can. Sometimes they're going to try and climb through them. But what they generally do is they get bounced back into the middle of the ring. And that's where you are standing to catch them again. And you do that every time and you just reinforce it and just reinforce it that you are there in their lives to be their guide. And they will. They will then take on the attribute that they see in you. And how do they learn that? By you being as good a human being as you can by being kind and thoughtful and how you treat your partner in life that's living with you, how they see you treating their siblings and friends. That's, that's what it's about. Wrapping up today's episode, Dr. Strawn, my final question for you today and one of my favorites is what inspired you to pursue a career in medicine, but more specifically, pediatrics? I promise you this, this is the truth and this is the answer that I give when people ask me. I went to medical school, I was going to become an orthopedic surgeon because that had been my exposure during my teenage years. Uh, I was, I had a bit of a back issue and I had to take it easy and I could only swim and load. So I was seeing a lot of that. So I thought it was pretty cool to uh -huh. become an orthopedic surgeon. So in my uh, third year in medicine, I always, I did my undergraduate training at UCT. I went to a beautiful hospital called Victoria Hospital. Beautiful old style, wooden floors, big wide wooden staircases. Even the wards had like wooden oak floors. And this group of eight guys arrived. I mean, what were we then? Uh, third year medicine, we were probably the year we turned 20. And there were eight of us in our group. And uh, we were met at the door of this pediatric ward by somebody who was now going to give us a tutorial. And we were like, first time we'd been in the pediatric ward, our eyes were like this, and we were just children in cots. And the guy said to us, each of you go to a cot, put the cot side down, sit with the child and just observe for 10 minutes. Just 
look at everything the child does and I'll come back to you and I'll talk to you about it. Best thing I've ever learned, I've used that technique in my teaching for years. Anyway, so I walked up to the cot that was closest by and I put the cot side down and I sat down and I sat with the child and within seconds we were talking and we were looking and the child was two years old, uh, playing with the child and looking and I looked over my shoulder because there was this commotion and there were children running away from my friends, another guy battling to put the cot side down. It was just, they, they looked at me and the, the seven of them said to me, how do you do that? I said, I have no idea. So they eventually caught their children and brought them all to the bed where I was. And I sat in the bed with these eight children. They stood around me and we observed the children like that. And that honestly was it. I realized that day, there clearly was something about what just happened I must pay attention to. So then I started to pay attention to, to the content, the academic content of what we were learning in orthopedics and surgery. And I just fell in love with pediatrics. Here I am. Just wonderful. Dr. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. A great pleasure. Thanks very much. That wraps up today's episode with Dr. Simon Strawn, a South African pediatrician offering expert advice on some of the key aspects to optimal growth and development in children. This podcast is powered by GlobeMed UK, giving you access to the best doctors, treatments, and medical specialists worldwide.